anything could happen to anybody at any time. So all we can do is give our time. Our time is the most precious thing. And that's what we wanted for our family. Welcome back investor to another episode of the Passive Income Adventures. Today is a little bit different. We have my partner Zasha Smith on and we are talking a lot about how to use a past to change your future and how she's been able to turn her life around from struggling in, in affordable housing with a single mom and how she's been able to now go and give back like she never has been able to before, especially with the recent disasters in her hometown where she lives on Maui and being able to volunteer her time and also her money and also be giving her voice and her influence to be able to help people know how that they can give and support the efforts there. And so it's just a, a huge a huge shift from where she was to where she is now. And it's all been made possible through her efforts to get more passive income and to be able to free up her time and be able to have an excess or an abundance to be able to share with others. And so if there's a passive income adventure to go on, this is the adventure we want to be able to help take care of people, to give to our communities. And we love to be able to play and travel and, and do fun things like that. And we do talk a little bit about, you know, being a baller, but doing it frugally so that you have enough left over to continue to invest and continue to bless your community. And so this is, I think what drives most of us as investors is the ability to be able to think bigger than us and to be able to give back and to be able to give a leg up to our communities. And Sasha's story tells you just that. She's so easy to connect with. And I'm really looking forward to hearing her story, where she came from, where she is today and what she's working on in the future. All right. Zasha, I'm so glad to have you here today. I've been trying to get you on the show for kind of forever. Uh, we've been partnered up for, I don't know, if we did our first deal together probably almost a year ago and done a couple of them together since then. And you have been just making huge waves in the commercial real estate space. So why don't you take us back in time a little bit, tell us where you got started and kind of bring us up to your transition over into the commercial space and how, not only how you did that, but why you did that. Well, thanks for having me on, Emma. Uh, I really do truly appreciate our relationship. And uh, I think that's been the key point in me transitioning or every step of the way. I kind of connected with somebody who I trusted and felt comfortable with and who already had some experience. So for me, I grew up in affordable housing on Maui. I'm still here to this day, raised by a single mom and uh, put myself through college and became a civil engineer while also having my first daughter. So perseverance has been going on throughout my life. And uh, I became a civil engineer because I knew you had to be a doctor, lawyer, or an engineer to be able to afford to live in an expensive place like Hawaii. And so after working my job for 10 years, I was working 60 to 70 hour weeks. And I had two kids at the time. I was married. And it was like I wasn't spending any time with them. And so I remember a quote specifically that my husband said, and he was like, they're getting the best of you and we're getting the rest of you. Because I would always end up being tired, you know, coming home, just wanting to rest on the weekends or even starting to go into work on the weekends because I was so worried about Monday coming and all the deadlines we had to meet and all the budgeting we had to do. We were at the point where we were managing, you know, 20 to $50 million projects, the underground utilities for hotels, shopping centers, and subdivisions. And so it was very stressful. And at that time, I had made it up to project manager. So overseeing a bunch of these projects and being licensed, you know, everything kind of was under 
my I guess license. So from there, I was looking into other ways to kind of make money. And so like any millennial, I started Googling how to quit your job and get rich or how to make other streams of income. And so lots of things, different types of things came up with stocks, crypto, but I didn't really feel comfortable because I didn't really know that, but I knew real estate. So my first house I ended, I bought with my mom, it was kind of a house hack at that time. We were both single mothers. And so the only way we could afford a home was together. And it was a two unit. She ended up moving out. I rented that side and then ended up uh, renting out one of the bedrooms on my side as well. So all my living expenses were covered, the mortgage and uh, utilities and things. And that kind of got that idea in my head that there was something to this real estate thing. And then after we sold the property, we made 150000 each and we didn't have to pay taxes because uh, it was our primary residence. So if you lived in there two out of the last five years and you sell it and you make a certain amount of gain, you don't have to pay the capital gains taxes. So that was another, um, I guess, light bulb moment where when I bought my next house, I was like, okay, there's something to this real estate thing. We bought a fixer upper. We ended up getting a HELOC on the house as well that basically paid us back all the money we had into the house. And from there, when I was looking for other ways to kind of like make money, real estate popped in my head that that was something that we could potentially do. And so for there, I started fixing and flipping. I started buying rentals. My CPA told me, you know, hey, you have all this income now, you got to pay taxes. So you should buy a few rentals. So started doing that. Right now I own 17 rentals on my own. And I've done over 20 something fix and flips. I still do them to this day as active income. And then I reached out to Emma because I had heard about her through another friend, another one of my fun partners, and was looking for other ways to make uh, passive income and get depreciation. Because at that time, I think it's 2021, going into 2022, I couldn't find any rent good rental deals. So the way that I buy rentals is I use the Burr strategy, which is you buy, you renovate, you rent it out, you refinance, and then repeat that process. And that made that was the only way that I wanted to buy properties. I could have bought turnkey, but for me, I at that time became more about like the deal itself and then how much money I could get back or if I could replace all the money that I could back and recycle it that was more important to me so once i found out about commercial real estate and how you could invest in things but you didn't have to deal with the tenants themselves because a lot of them i still self-manage that was like something that really appealed to me and the fact that i couldn't find any fixer-uppers that made sense with the especially now with the interest rates like will it even cash flow at this point so Took the leap um, in 2022, invested in four of those types of syndications. And then now partnering with Emma and a few of our other partners to excel that it, through a fund and help other uh, professionals invest in those types of deals as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting journey that you had towards it because I do meet a lot of real estate investors who are wholesaling or they're doing fix and flips and they're getting really burned out. I, I had a, an experience once where I was at a commercial real estate meetup of some sort and I was sitting there and the guy who came in after me sits down next to me and I look over and it was one of my mentors, one of the big single family guys in our area. And I said, what are you doing here? And he says, you know, get just getting burned out. Commercial real estate is where it's at. And then a couple of minutes later, another guy comes in and sits down next to him 
And I looked over and I said, didn't you just present to our real estate club on how to flip like a zillion houses at a time? And he said, yeah, but if I keep doing that, my wife might divorce me. So it's a lot of work to be an active real estate investor. And I think that the term investor is often conflated with entrepreneur. Like that's not really real estate investing. That's running a real estate business. And so you, I don't think you got into it because you were feeling burnt out. But the second you realize like you could invest in commercial properties and you didn't have to self-manage or you didn't even have to, to do more than just working with your property manager, it, it was almost like a light bulb went off where you were like, Hey, you know, I can do something else in the real estate base in space and be an investor rather than a business owner. So can you take me through the transition uh, that you had from active investor to maybe a little bit more um, hands-off and how that's afforded you to rethink some of the things in your life? Well, so for me, I never knew what, you know, as far as my understanding of commercial real estate, I always thought you had to buy it yourself or maybe you buy with a few partners. You have to have like hundreds of millions of dollars to buy these apartment buildings. And so I was in no capacity to try to learn another huge strategy. And I started attending the free meetings that you guys had for a rise club. And so being around other people who had already invested in commercial real estate, understanding the lingo, understanding the terms, and that you could be a limited partner, or you could negotiate a, a higher equity stake if you are able to raise a certain amount of money really piqued my interest because I was already raising private money for my deals. And because I lived in an expensive market, you know, I've been raising like the most I ever raised in one deal was almost a million dollars. So on my own, I was kind of doing that, but not checking for accreditations or anything like that, because with the private lending space on these uh, smaller projects, you it, basically anybody with money who wants to lend on projects can do that. And so for me, it's just get it was getting to know the uh, steps that it took for the commercial side and learning all the ins and outs of that through other investors who have already done it or operators uh, who've been through, you know, the cycle that made me more comfortable to to think about how can i take this that i'm already doing and then portray that into a different type of strategy and so even like you mentioned with the passive income part of it right even though i'm self-managing that's still work that i'm putting in to get that passive income whereas the commercial real estate side of it you're really depending on your partners or the operators to make sure that things are running efficiently and everybody has their roles. So I really enjoyed that part of it, that it wasn't all on me or my qualifications in order to, you know, develop this other stream of income. Yeah. I think it was really interesting when you first came into the club, it's basically what we do there is like a joint venture. It's like people who have some level of skill uh, and you as a civil engineer, I think were really helpful as we were looking at deals to be able to ask those critical questions about the structure itself and about what was going on and just being able to contribute your skill set into what we were doing and then be able to say like, well, I don't really like doing this part or I don't really like doing that part, but I have this skill that I can contribute. And so we're in there doing these joint ventures with larger operators and getting in there with people who frankly are younger than me and better at this than I am. They run businesses, they have employees, they take this very seriously and they're not just looking to make a quick buck of passive income and then retire. This is a business for them and a calling for them. And so finding those great operators who are able to take this on and who are really good at it, to me, that was a huge light bulb moment because before that I was running my own apartment buildings, I putting small groups together, joint ventures together, and we were all 
basically trying to run this thing together. And it was not really scalable because I felt like I had all these asset management meetings and all these issues, all these problems. And frankly, the more probably the more properties you have, the more money you need to be putting into it because the something always breaks and you don't have any limited partners to do a capital call with. Not that we want to do a capital call, but when it's just a bunch of bunch of old rich guys, like what you were saying, you know, the money comes from us every single time and there's always something going wrong. And I just realized like I need a bigger company or bigger group behind me who enjoys running these things. Cause I personally don't. So I've been able to really niche down hard into what I'm really good at and what I really like by bringing partners into it. And I don't think that I'm, I don't even know if I could say that I'm making more money by doing more properties. Cause I give away a lot more of them, but I'm able to spend my time doing only the things that I'm really good at and where I really bring true value instead of trying to just mop up everything. I don't know. Have you, have you found that as you've kind of gotten into the commercial side of things and and just tell me like the difference between that and the more active business that you're running. So I think the tedious tasks that come along with doing a bunch of projects at once, like you mentioned, you're always having to, even though you work yourself out of having to physically be there all the time, you're still having these meetings and coordinating between teams. And so I think that takes up a lot of our time, but when you're investing in, uh, another somebody else's commercial, you know, a bigger commercial deal, things don't move as quickly as they do with your own projects because you're in it day to day. So you more so have weekly updates or if you have quarterly updates as well about the project, things move a lot slower, I feel like, than with my like fix and flip projects per se, or even my rental properties because they're smaller. So they can get done in a shorter amount of time. And then you worry about the next step or where the property management is or, or even like contractors, right? That's a huge, huge uh, issue a lot of times with any kind of real estate de uh, development, especially when you are doing, you know, renovations or even doing new builds to find consistent people to actually do the work. Yeah. I, I love that. It's two, two ladies sitting around talking about real estate <laughs> investing and especially like large commercial real estate investing. I think it really helps to break down the barriers that mm -hmm. uh, people often have in the vision they have. Like I make the joke, the old white guys who own all the apartment buildings and, and it's really uh, opened up an avenues for a lot more people to get involved in this type of real estate that maybe like you were saying, you never would have occurred to you to say, Oh, I can go do that. Because I had the same idea when we started, like we needed to buy our own building. Let's start with a 12 unit. And then I started meeting people that telling me, no, you can buy a 200 unit. And it's just as much work as a 12 unit. Like, oh, well, well, we could just go out and do that. And so I felt limited only by the amount of money that I could raise. And so you're been, you've been able to niche down into your specialty of capital raising. And often that's the most valuable person on the team, or at least the early team. Um, the execution and the management is, uh, is pretty intense, but early on, nobody's doing anything unless some capital is being raised. So how have you been able to take that skill set from your business into what you're doing now and really find, um, find your lane? So for me, it's always been kind of the more eyeballs you have, the more people you can get in front of, and then the more potential investors that you'll attract into your deals. Because I find a lot of times, uh, for me, I was thinking it was like, oh, who you know, it's only certain people allowed in the room. But in actuality, if you ban a bunch of people that you enjoy being around with, that have the capital to inject, a lot of people don't even realize that they can 
they're investing into their retirements and they could invest that into these types of projects. So I think it's more so awareness. But for me, my skill has always been uh, getting in front of people and collaborating and uh, just building connections because I showcase what I do, you know, as a real mother, a, a real wife and how my real life is. And a lot of people connect with that genuineness. And like you're mentioning, they can relate because it's always been, you know, it doesn't have to be suit and ties in this boardroom and you have to have everything figured out. Right. I've learned in the process, you know, since I've begun that partnerships are really the way that you can scale. And so I don't got to know everything about commercial real estate. I still consider myself a beginner, but my partners can leverage their own experience or I can leverage their experience to know what is the best next step for, let's say, like our fund that we're starting or for the next deal that we get into. And through their experience and their connections, we know the right questions to ask, the right things to look for in the deals and really can move forward and be most efficient as a team. Exactly. And like I said, that's one of the nicest things about working with a partnership. I felt, I feel like one of the skills that I have that I'd never knew that I had because I never had partners. I was always solo was that I actually put together pretty good partnerships, keep them together by uh, finding a, identifying people's strengths and weaknesses and being able to negotiate, especially when things get a little bit tough, people are having disagreements. And I find those to actually be very healthy part of the process. And I never would have found that I had that skill if I didn't start working with partnerships and doing bigger projects. So I've, I've been able to uncover something that I really enjoy and I'm good at that I had no idea about um, in my previous businesses where I was just on my own. Well, and, and a lot of it too is being able to be approachable because mm -hmm. Some people invest into these types of deals, but they feel like they can't even talk to the partners in it or the operators. And so for us, I think we give a very kind of open type of vibe or like we're very transparent and we're easy to get in contact with for people to ask any questions. So that's what I felt is another strength as well, is that we are not trying to hide behind any red tape or, you know, kind of close off to information as soon as we get to know things and we let our investors know as well. Mm -hmm. And they appreciate that, right? Instead of coming at, at the end and scrambling, it's more so, okay, hey, we've seen like COVID happen, right? And then uh, currently in today's market, the rising interest rates. So I think as long as you keep uh, abreast of what's going on and the reality of the current market, and, you know, there are going to be some ups and downs, but, you know, you can't paint everything to be cherry. There are, there are struggles and challenges that mm -hmm. we're going to go through. Yeah. I feel like part of my job as um, in investor relations in our team is to buffer those ups and downs for the investor a little bit with all of the stuff that's really stressful, share what needs to be shared, but sometimes it's not always a straight line up. And so I think getting ready for that journey and working with someone who's transparent, who's going to like give it to you straight, but without scaring you. I had a partner once <laughs> who every time we sat down to have a meeting, he would open it up with guys, I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> and it just, it was just problem after problem after problem. And I thought, you know, I have the same problems on another deal that I'm working on very similar types of properties. Um, but that partner was very, very optimistic. He'd sit down and he'd say, Hey, we got some stuff we need to work through today. I'm really excited to see what solutions you have for. It. And so having that communication and, but also a positive attitude, I found this has been really important dealing with investors. And I think that's something that you do really well. It, because you're talking about that you're approachable, relatable, transparent, but you're able to 
also communicate what needs to be communicated without sugarcoating it, but with also out also without just scaring people and making them think, oh, you know, what's going to happen to my money? Because it's a roller coaster for sure. So how do you walk that line? I think for me, it's always just knowing that person as well. A lot of my the people that do end up investing with us, I make sure to get to know them on a personal level or even something as small as follow them on social media so I can keep updated for what their values are or what they see as important too. So you know what to point out, especially when you're talking to them or you know, just buffering and be like, hey, with any investment, there is going to be risk. We try to mitigate it as much as we can and keep you guys up to date. But even for me, whenever I invest my money into anything, right, I don't expect to lose it, but I know there is a chance to do that. So I think just Having, I honestly think it's just the your availability as well, being open and honest, and a, and they can contact you, like have direct contact. I think that eases a lot of their fears. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, my daughters love you. I think that because we're we're uh, I follow you on Instagram. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that you were suggested for somebody for them to follow, but I don't think they realized that that was why. And so um, I, I guess I was saying, well, we're going to Hawaii soon and we're going to stay um, in Maui and go visit my partner, Zasha. And my daughter was like, Zasha Smith, like, you know her. <laughs> and I re- I said, why are you following a, a real estate investor on Instagram? And she said, oh, it's just because I, I didn't see any women investors. I just, I all of your partners are men and I just didn't know anybody. So when I saw this come up as someone suggested that I should follow, I just was really excited that there was a woman and somebody who was like me and who looked like me. And they just felt very inspired. And, and my oldest daughter, she is a senior in uh, engineering school right now. And she's extremely frustrated by the almost hopelessness that she feels about even after she gets out of school, graduates and starts working, that she's not going to be able to make a good enough income to really get started on buying a house. So she's done all this work and spent all this money on this engineering degree. And she loves engineering, but she's just feeling like it's just not going to be able to support her. So what advice would you give to some young women who look up to you as a role model, especially, you know, my daughter's if I'm going to do a little selfishly, you know, the the aspiring engineer, the young investor on how to just navigate finances in today's world. Well, I think just budgeting in general is super important. So like I mentioned, I grew up with a single mom. So she made us balance her checkbook for those who still know what that is. And we would see the zeros or the negatives. And whenever we would ask for things, I go to the movies or new clothes. And my mom's like, look at the checkbook. Like, I don't have any money. So we're very much aware of the income and then what we spend it on. And so that holds true to today. I'm not a very frugal person, but... I do, you know, enjoy spend money on the things that matter to me. But if you're young and just up and coming, I think like just learning how to save money or learning how to find deals just in general, you know, I still shop at Ross. I still look for deals at the supermarket. A lot of times people spend their money until they don't have any. And then they're like, oh, I got to wait till my, my next paycheck. So just being aware of that and then also just being aware of your options. Like there's so many ways to make money online nowadays, but having that, have that stable income of your W-2, because when I started investing, I still was working my job for a year and then I was able to quit because my rental income and my flipping income offset that. But I still held on to my job because I was thinking, okay, what if this doesn't work out? Or what if it, you know, I wasn't just gung-ho and just um, burn the bridge right away. So for those of you who are in a position to potentially buy a house, I would definitely suggest house hacking like I did when I first bought my house with my mom. So of course, 
not suggesting everybody move back yeah. in with their mom, but uh, definitely that is a way for you to offset your income. So even if you buy a multi-unit property, you know, starting off with an FHA loan or starting off with those low down payment loans and then have multiple units because you could potentially have those units count towards your income as well. So that's one way I would suggest to get started. And then another way is just being able to go to these events, learn, educate yourself. And like your daughters have mentioned, follow people on social media. Like that's where every, a lot of eyeballs are at. And what my biggest strength right now is getting across to the masses because I do have a big following, but it's more so relaying, you know, the right message and just having people who identify with me, you know, be able to be inspired and really know that there is a chance for you to make it right to to do big things in the world to make an impact on your community. And you don't have to start with money, you can start from nothing and you know, work your way up. But I mean, I think for your daughters, they have a great example. But my daughter is the same way she did not listen to me at all. She's 17 years old now. And uh, I told her recently that she, you know, in order for her to start driving my car, for instance, because she does have her license now, that she had to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Well, she was like, well, I don't want to drive anyway. You know, I, you drive me everywhere. I'm like, okay, that's not a good incentive. So she asked for her friends to sleep over. And I said, well, did you read the book? And she said, no. So I was like, well, if you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, you'll make it easier for me to make this decision. So she read it in three days. Yeah. <laughs> Granted, she does not like to read at all. Um, and she did underline it. We went through the summary, talked about it. But I think just, especially with your kids for parents, just finding some way to incentivize your kids to make these better financial decisions, to uh, want to be educated on things that are happening around them. And we use like real life examples to compare, okay, the rich dad or poor dad, who is this, who is that, and what kind of, you know, have them try to envision what kind of life do they want for themselves. And then how can you potentially help them get there? So even for her, she was like, once you start driving, you're going to have to pay for insurance. You're going to have to pay for gas. You might have a car payment as well. So how are you going to pay for those things? And she's like, well, I'm going to get a job. It's like, well, do you want to get a job or do you want to start your own business? Right? So just planting those seeds in their heads and then giving them avenues to where they can actually accomplish that. So her thoughts is she wants to do like a vending machine because that's a form of passive income that she's seen on TikTok or whatever. And um, <laughs> it's just like giving them that background or like backing that they can do actually whatever these big thoughts that they have, you know, just being there to listen, mm -hmm. but then also offer them ways to actually achieve it. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point because I've had a couple of my kids opt out of college. Um, my oldest is in engineering school. My next has a, a technical certificate. Um, my next is completely opted out. She's like, I want to be a landlord. And so she's just working whatever she can, uh, working a job to save up enough money to do a house hack. And then my 17-year-old when we started moving around, I'm like, let's go on a big passive income adventure. You know, I'm renting the house out, get in the car. And so they're like, but we have to quit our job. And how am I supposed to make money? And I said, well, you better get creative about how to make money online as a teenager. And so both mm -hmm. my 15 year old and my 17 year old uh, started a business selling their artwork. 
And they, they figured out that if I quit my job at the fast food where I was working 15 hours a week or something like that, I need to do four uh, commissioned artworks per week, per week to make the same amount of money. And guess who loves their job way more now that they've quit their fast food job and they're just doing online while we travel around taking commissions. And so it just, it's a matter of almost just being creative and right. looking at the situation you're in. And I think that's your, what your story illustrates really well, because my upbringing and your upbringing were very different. <laughs> I had kind of that uh, middle class, we're doing okay, so let's not hope for any better because we might ruin what we have. Um, and I feel like in some ways that was a detriment because good is the enemy of great. And so it kept us from dreaming bigger and trying harder and really seeing and, hey, I want to I go big. But how do you think that your upbringing kind of affected your attitude today of just saying like, hey, I've been in the worst situation financially that you can be in. And I made it. It's kind of like that. Well, I used to live in my car. And if I had to go live back in my car again, if this business failed, at least I knew how. So how has your attitude towards money, if in your past kind of informed you in your present? What's always taught me, because I was a big saver, like I saved a lot of money, especially for our first home, even though we had FHA, like $10,000 was a lot to me back then. And so I was able to save that while working full time and having my daughter, having to pay for preschool and um, all her other needs and my needs as well and rent and all of that. So I think I've always just been mindful of uh, what it takes to take care of yourself and, you know, your family. And I think you know, the money aspect, actually, my husband is the one who got me to like, think bigger about it, because I was always like, trying to keep it close to heart, you know, like, oh, I got it, I got to have like a big savings, because what if a disaster happens, or something happens, and I don't have anything, like, I was always very fearful, or what if we get divorced, and you know, you leave me, and I have nothing, or I, it was a, a lot of mental, um, challenges that I had to get through because mm -hmm. I grew up the way that I did. But he has taught me to be like, you know, if you spend money on something that could potentially return you even more back, and it's something like passive income or something, because even real estate, I bought my first couple of deals, I made 100,000 or 103,000 on my first flip. And I only was making 70,000 at my job. And that flip only took 45 days. My husband was like, yay, now you can quit your job and spend time with us. I was like, no, no. What if, What about health insurance? What about, you know, what if I just got lucky? And so he's the one who gets me to like kind of think outside of myself and really just realize like sometimes you got to bet on yourself and, you know, follow your heart or follow what you think will be the right thing for not only you, but for your family. And so I still, I'm very frugal, like I mentioned, still to this day, but I do invest in things that I know will benefit me in the future. And a lot of people, when you ask them, oh, why do you start investing? It's like, oh, for my kids, generational wealth. That is true, but also for myself. So I have more time to spend with them or spend it how I want, have more options and, you know, opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I noticed on a vacation recently, it was like your kids are now getting the best of you because you have enough mental energy left over. But you said something about being a frugal baller. And I'm going to steal that one <laughs> for myself because I feel like that's what we're doing on our adventure. And it was a big pay cut when my husband left his W-2. And we kind of had made that commitment to ourselves. It was it was like, it's time to do it. Our kids are getting older and we really want to go on these adventures before our nest completely empties out. We already have three of them adults. And I remember seeing that. I said, you know what? We're just going to go have a good time. We're just going to be ballers, but we have to be frugal about it. And so I've um, seen you um, who I, I think makes 
more money than we do, uh, being frugal, but still being able to go out and, and do some fun stuff and not going crazy gives you more money to invest. You can upgrade your lifestyle when you upgrade your investments. As your money is spinning off of your investments, then you can go spend that on vacations or or whatever. But I think something that have has really touched me about your mission and what you're working on is, like you said, what if there is a disaster and your your commitment to um, affordable housing and people who are really living on the edge, especially where you are, where the poverty level is so high and ex- housing is so expensive. Tell me about kind of like take us into the future of what your life looks like as you are moving forward, as you have found a, a level of solidity for yourself, as you continue to build that, not only to help yourself, your kids, but also now being able to think even bigger and how to get outside of that and help your community. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, your dreams and your plans and things that really motivate you now. Because once we get out of the rat race, sometimes we get back into another rat race of just starting a business or something like that. But how can you kind of keep your vision clear moving forward and find the new thing that motivates you now that you've achieved a lot of your early goals? I really want to build truly affordable housing here in Hawaii, and especially on Maui, because the medium home price is $1.2 million. And so I've started, you know, renting my rent, majority of my rentals are rented to people on Section 8, HUD, or some kind of rental assistance, and it's well below market. So I've, because I'm able to find good deals and refinance and have a lower, lower mortgage payment, I'm able to offer housing at a more affordable pricing. So for here, the issue that we always run into is that permitting takes forever. I am doing a new build project here on Maui, and I'm on year two. And the house is still there, hasn't been demoed yet. There's a lot of red tape that happens with the politics here. So that is huge because for a big developer who wants to build, you know, maybe 200 units here, it'll take him 10 to 15 years just to get the plans approved and everything to go through every single department in Hawaii. So that is my goal is to, and by the time they end up building it, now building costs have gone up, construction costs have gone up, and then now it's not really affordable. Mm-hmm. So finding a way to do that, whether that be tiny homes, you know, buying a land and doing it that way, that way it's also a faster process or working with, you know, a political officials to get things pushed through. Not sure what that looks like, but that is my ultimate goal is to to provide that for the local community. And a lot of times too, when I'm native Hawaiian, but there has been, you know, some um, different feelings about investors here and land ownership. So I'm very mindful of the way that I do invest. And a lot of times when I am, you know, fixing and flipping, I buy homes, renovate them, work with the homeowners a lot of times, not working with realtors, but working directly with the homeowners. And if that's the best situation for them, I'll renovate it. And then if a local family comes in and offers, it's not the highest offer. We get all cash or people who want to buy second homes here. I'll end up working with the local family. So I always let people know that when you have ownership of something or when you take control of your income or, you know, property and have just any sort of ownership over anything, you get to choose where it goes or what you do with it. And if your goal is to make a difference, you can do that. You can make an impact no matter how small or big. 
How do you balance that with the demands that you have personally? Because when I first started my um, photography business, one of the mandates that I had was affordable photography. And I wanted to give the option for anybody to be able to have great pictures at their wedding or family picture once a year. I just felt like this custom photography movement was so expensive and it's just a lady with a camera and no studio, no lights. Like, why can't we do this affordably? But I, I quickly learned that I was taking a lot of time away from my family to provide affordable photos for strangers. And I really couldn't justify that much time away from my kids and be like, Hey, go away. Mommy has to edit this. And so when I got into real estate, I immediately went after commercial because I knew that if I was going to spend time doing this, I needed to maximize my income earning potential so that I could then have more time to spend with my kids because I could hire like some help or some things like that. So how do you balance that vision with saying, Hey, I have to maximize how much I'm making to be able to make less or spend more time on something that's less rewarding financially and justifying that time. That balance has been really difficult for me to strike. It is for me as well. And that's why every time I have to make a rental increase or things like that, I really, I'm always in this kind of limbo, but honestly, I keep it at the rates that HUD will cover. Mm -hmm. And so for Maui, especially because the current rents are just always so high, like just this past what I'm one of my just for example, one of my three bedrooms, it was renting for I think the max that they were cover last year was $3,000, mm-hmm. including utilities. Now this year, it went up to 30, I believe, right under 3400. So that's a still a $400 a month increase by the government who's subsidizing their rent. So that's kind of how I've been able to offset okay, but rents here again for that same house, if I was just putting on the market, it would be $4,000 mm-hmm. a month. Wow. So it's still being affordable in the context of mm-hmm. what the government and what it takes to live in an expensive market like Hawaii is, but I'm still under market and I'm still being able to increase my rents without it affecting mm-hmm. the actual renters themselves. Yeah. And I find I'm being able to balance projects that I feel like are going to do really well versus projects that I feel like are going to give really well. That's part of my mandate. I I don't always just want to be looking at the profit line and the investors don't either. That's what I've noticed. I I did a survey of my investors recently and and said, you know, what are we doing right? What can we do better? And uh, one in particular really hit me hard. And he said, I really want to do more for the community. He said, I feel like I've got the passive income thing figured out. I've quit my job and, and now I'm just trying to figure out what to work on and how to bless my own community. And so kind of when you've gotten to the point where you get out of the rat race, you don't get yourself wrapped up in a second rat race and you can really start thinking ahead to how can you bless your community. And he said, I really want more projects uh, in front of me to be able to invest in that I feel like are going to do a greater good and solve some of the ills in our society. And I I think that um, that attitude, the more I've gotten involved with my investors who kind of are my heroes, like they're usually a lot wealthier than I am. And I feel like the example that they're setting for me to follow is of just being more community minded and how we can make the world a better place. Because once, once you've kind of been able to step back and take a deeper breath, you start thinking about those things. So how's that, how's that been for you over the past couple of years? It's a bit of big lifestyle shift that you've made. It is. And a lot of times, I mean, don't get me wrong. I can work from, you know, day till night, uh, but it's me cutting myself off from, you know, all the efforts. Cause there was always, there will be always something to do or always something that needs to be fixed or always somebody that needs help. And so it's just really integral for me, especially being around my family to have that cutoff point, but realize that, 
even if it's me putting one family into a house that was, you know, the same position as my mom was like a single mom, three kids, barely making it like I am making an impact no matter how small or like I mentioned, how big with maybe getting into affordable housing, like being able to build a subdivision that truly meets the needs of the local community here. And especially with this role right now, this disaster happening here on Maui where, you know, thousands of homes have been burnt down. 12,000 or more people were displaced within the past week. Like it was very quick. That made me realize too, the importance of what I'm doing now is that it's just trickling over to how I can help people. Like the last week I've been able to have the flexibility to, you know, be able to volunteer at these shelters, be able to run donations to the different families that need them, be able to house families in our rental properties that, uh, you know, lost everything, everything burnt to the ground. And so I think it's important for us to also realize that we are only human. We can only do so much, but even you having an impact on one family or, you know, doing one free photography versus, you know, and then nine, you know, paid ones, that's fine. So you just got to, like you mentioned, just set forth, okay, some sort of parameters for yourself that you also take a step back and be like, okay, I am, you know, making a difference too. That's a really good point. Cause I remember, um, we're from Austin and when Austin and Houston were flooding, um, and, and you tell me like how you're dealing with this, because I found that when we were going through that, it was two years in a row where it was just really disastrous floods. And we would go to Houston or we would go to the local communities and put on our work gloves and help clean out the houses and clean them out. A lot of them didn't even have flood insurance because they didn't qualify for it because it'd never been a flood in that area before. And so it was, it was just a lot of devastation. And I remember probably the lowest point for me was when I was called to photograph some houses for sale. And I was standing there and the realtor said, don't photograph these empty slabs, these empty foundations on either side of this house, because we don't want that to be in the photos. And those were the houses that were swept away in the floodwaters. And across the river, I was, t- I was like, oh, the river doesn't look very good right now because it's got all these trees and things down in it. And the, these all these empty foundation, like the pilings, like the column foundations. And those were the houses that had been swept away. And, and many people had been killed and just standing there in that situation and thinking, how am I supposed to photograph this house for this elderly person who can't live here anymore? Because it's damaged and uh, basically they need to sell it to somebody who can come in and, and recover. And I, it was one of the hardest days that we had. And I just went home and I, and it had, like I said, it had been going on for about two years at that point. And I just thought, I don't know if I can keep doing this. It just was devastating, but just trying to do what we could to help with the cleanup, help to provide photography for the people who had to get out of these houses because they couldn't afford to fix them. It was, I felt like I was doing something at least, but it really took a toll <laughs> on the entire community's uh, mental health, both those of us who didn't lose our homes, but those who had, obviously it was much, much worse, but coming in at support. So how are you handling that, especially since you're in a position now where you can do more than you've ever been able to do before? So we've been volunteering. My husband's been taking supplies in and out. There's people, you know, living in parks, living at tents, living in shelters, And we're just doing the best that we can. The other night, for example, my husband, he came home and he was distraught. I was distraught. And we're just like, you know, kind of feeling a sort of guilt that like we were spared in it Mm -hmm. because there's fires all around us. But our town uh, didn't get burnt. But at the same time, it's like we 
set our lives up for this from the start. And, you know, anything could happen to anybody at any time. So all we can do is, you know, one, give our time. Our time is the most precious thing. And that's what we wanted for our family. But now we're focusing that on the survivors. And then two, be able to give back as much as we can. So we donated like our our family members' houses burnt down. Our friends' houses burnt down. We have a lot of people that we know personally that have been affected by it as well. And just being a resource for them. And like you mentioned, it's the mental health thing. The community as a whole is now suffering with, you know, they had to evacuate a lot of tourists as well that came here. And that a lot of people are without jobs, not only without homes, but their businesses burnt down. Now they're living with family members. And now those family members are struggling because now those their bills are going to be higher and trying to feed these people too and so it's been you know our whole community has been shaken up but I think there is a lot of hope out there and for me initially I was volunteering every single day and then now I'm putting my efforts more towards okay what happens now their house is burnt down where are they going to live how can we provide solutions for that you know work with churches or work with different developers in the community. Maybe we can use some land and we can put up some of these emergency type of shelters so that people have some space because I don't know if you've ever stayed at like one of these disaster areas or these these gyms or memorials or schools that they put you up in, but it's just a big space. There's a lot of cots. There's just a lot of people everywhere. You're sharing everything, which is fine temporarily, you know, in the days or, or maybe a couple of weeks, but as far as like a temporary shelter, you know, people need their own space. And so I'm working with a few other investors here in Hawaii and developers, landowners, and people that have a real, um, uh, I guess, effect on the community, some community leaders to figure out these other solutions so that we can work with the government to try to balance the two and figure out where are they going to go? And so just recently they announced that a lot of the hotels are going to be, you know, donating some rooms. A lot of Airbnbs are now going to be turned into longer term rentals. And so it's just working together as a community and getting them the resources and information. The president is even flying here, I think next week. I'm going to make a statement. FEMA is here, Red Cross. And, you know, a lot of our community feels a type of way because it took them, you know, so long to get here. It was about four or five days that we were cut off from, you know, especially on that side, their houses burnt down. They had no electric, no water, almost like you're living in a third world country. And so um, I'm just, for me being a leader, especially in this community on Maui, I'm just telling everybody, okay, you know, Everybody has the way that they feel about things, but we also need to know that they're here now. So how can we, you know, make use of the programs and the help and the money that they're going to give to the people that were affected and find a way to work together? Let's, you know, unite. And I can only imagine Hurricane Katrina, you know, that happening to that community as well. Luckily, you know, we still we're very much community oriented and we will take anybody in, give the shirt off our back. But in turn, that also affects the community at a large because we're on a small island. We have very limited resources and people, you know, will not only the people affected, but the people that are helping the other people are also going to be affected as well. Yeah. We were there during Katrina too. And <laughs> it's, it's sometimes it felt nonstop, you know, when Harvey hit and the year before that, it's, 
I, I realized in that space, I'll share just a brief experience. I grew up in Seattle and we didn't really have natural disasters there. But one time when I was in high school, we had kind of a cyclone, hurricane, typhoon, whatever you want to call it, hit the West Coast and it knocked out power for four days. And so they sent us home early from school and we're waiting for the power to come back on. And I went home and we didn't have anything to get ready to go. I mean, I remember lying, I was sleeping on the dining room floor because the basement was so cold and we didn't have... I, I just on a blanket on the floor and it was so uncomfortable. And then the fridge was out. We're just trying to clean out the fridge as best we could. And it was kind of miserable for about a day and a half or so. And so I walked up to my best friend's house who lived about a half mile away and they were like living in this luxurious situation because they had a generator, they had all this food, canned food and stuff that they'd put up. They had a wood burning stove. And so the lights were on and they had a bunch of people over at their house. And so they said, just stay here. And they put me up in this much more comfortable situation. And I just stayed there for three or four days while we were waiting for the power to come back on. And that was a really stark example to me of being able to be in a position to help others versus needing help. And so it became something that I was always striving for after that. It was very frustrating to me during the hurricanes, you know, Katrina and Harvey, that we couldn't do more to help people because we weren't really in a position. We could pay our mortgage and we had a little emergency fund, but we weren't really in a position to do much more. And so I'm, I'm interested to see what Hawaii looks like, what Maui looks like when I get there next month. Hopefully you can hook me up with some opportunities where we can help out with actual boots on the ground. But for those of us who are not going to be there, can you share, and we'll put it in the show notes as well, what resources can you say are in the most need of help right now from people who are not in Maui? So there was an overwhelming response when this happened. It made national news mm-hmm. because it has been deemed as the worst you know, natural disaster, fire disaster that's happened ever in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and ever in Hawaii itself. So like I mentioned, there's just been so much aid and help and donations, but right now people need monetary donations. So Hawaii Community Foundation is an organization that I trust for people to donate to, and then they give grants to local boots on the ground. They're actually on Oahu, so it's not that they're not local, but they give grants to those particularly on Maui that mm-hmm. are helping, you know, women, kids, families, Maui Food Bank, they donate to a bunch of different organizations that could use it. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, as far as specifics, there's always things that we need will need in the coming months. And so if you do follow me on Instagram at invest with Dasha, I will be posting specifics of what people need. But every time we put something out there, there is more than an abundance that comes back that shows the true nature of aloha and how we, you know, the world in itself is watching and wanting to help. So just monetary donations for now, because we do live on an island and have limited resources, even space to store a lot of this stuff. When things first went down and people were sending things, there was actually too much things. And so we're having to deal with like loads and pallets and containers of clothes that these people don't really have anywhere to put it. Mm. They're staying at a shelter. Yeah. And so um, it's, it's amazing, but then yet there's still so much coordination that needs to go on from here on out. Mm -hmm. So monetary donations like to the Red Cross, do you think would be the most effective right now? Um, To Hawaii Community Mm -hmm. um, Foundation, Mm -hmm. to the Red Cross, also to Maui Food Bank. Uh, They have been essential in helping to get people food as well. And um, 
yeah, send your prayers too. I think we need a lot of that. Once we get more stability and get these people, you know, back on their feet and figuring that out, I think we'll release more, more ways to help as well. Mm -hmm. It's definitely when things like this happen, where you put your money where your mouth is literally, and it's probably, I don't know, for me, it's kind of the first time that I've really been able to think outside that box and think, okay, what can we do more than just thoughts and prayers, you know, give what you have, but if you have more to give, give more. And it's been inspiring to watch you and our other team members from Maui react to this disaster and mobilizing and putting your abundance out there for others to be able to enjoy. So appreciate you setting that example and letting us know how we can help when these kinds of situations happen. And, it, and I think that passive income and real estate investing and these types of things have really been instrumental in helping us to give more uh, than we ever have been able to do before. I agree. Well, and then the flexibility, right? It's mm -hmm. just like now I'm able to be out there. And like you mentioned, just my whole underlying goal ever since I started this journey of investing was to, you know, build wealth while making a positive impact. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to achieve that. And also, you know, run a successful business, take care of my family, but then as a community, take care of the community as a whole as well. Well, Sasha, thank you so much for talking to our listeners today. And how can people get a hold of you? And I always ask more importantly, why should people get a hold of you? Um, you can get a hold of me at Zosh, at Invest with Zosha on Instagram or on LinkedIn at Zosha Smith. Um, and then, of course, through Rise uh, Capital Investments, we have, you know, webinars happening all the time and free info sessions on how you can also, you know, achieve your goals of passive income. Um, but the reason why you should definitely uh, get in touch or follow or watch or support is because I always have a very uh, genuine uh, spirit about me. I'm fun, I'm real, but I also teach people the importance of having these financial opportunities available and extra sets of income. And just really, you know, um, we're real, I'm a real person, Emma's a real person. And so I think that needs to be showcased more is uh, people need to see people like them. And not the most articulate, I, I don't have everything figured out, but I've done well enough for myself that I'm able to help other people get a leg up in the world, maybe see things in a different perspective or be able to achieve the same things as me or more. And so I'm always looking out, you know, for the betterment of other people as well as, as my own. So thank you so much. So listener, if you are connecting with Sasha and her story, please reach out. The reason that we do these podcasts is not so we can just sit and talk to each other, although that is a huge benefit of learning from one another as a guest and a host, but also because we want to get in touch with you. So definitely reach out uh, after the show with her on Instagram or through our website, book a call. And we are looking forward to talking to you. So Sasha, thank you so much for being with us today. Aloha. I'm so glad Zasha could make this last minute interview today. She had it on the calendar, but with everything that's been going on lately, she actually canceled and we had to squeeze this in between some other activities where she's been out helping others and still running a business and being a mom on top of it. Again, so grateful that she was able to make the time to share this message. 
And we hope that you're able to reach out to her and also to be able to reach out to the organizations that she mentioned to really take the chance to help those who are needing a leg up right now. I also hope that this story really inspired you to work on your passive income abilities to free up your time, maybe your location as we have done so that we can go on fun adventures with our family, but also to be able to go and help where help is needed. I know it was very draining for us when we lived in Texas and we just had so many things to do, but we were always there to help. And I feel so much more capable of being able to give more help now than we ever did before. So if you want to learn more about how to invest with us, how to increase your cash flow and your passive income so that you have more ability and more abundance to be able to share with your family and with others, just give us a call by going to risecapitalinvestments.co. We're looking forward to talking with you and we're looking forward to investing with you. Thank you so much for listening today. And we will see you all next week.